There's a quote you've probably heard before. It's often wrongly attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. In fact, I don't know if anyone actually ever said it, but it goes like this. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Great quote. Hard not to be inspired by it. And I must admit, I find it so simple and moving, it makes me wonder, could I be a revolutionary? Could I stand up for something bigger than myself? Could I be ignored, laughed at, fought with, all so that one day I could win? Well, the winning part sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But in looking at the history of revolutions, I'm sad to say that the quote is somewhat misleading. Obviously, there's the possibility of, what if I lose? The consequences are usually pretty bad. But the real question, and the one that's probably asked the least, is, what happens after I win? And that's why I would like to propose an amendment to this quote. Perhaps it should read something more like this. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win, and then you're all alone. Because the sad truth for many revolutionaries is that in fighting for a better tomorrow, they make a lot of enemies today. I don't think I could be a revolutionary. I'm not willing to sacrifice my life, my family, my future, but maybe through stories like the one I'm about to share with you, I could open my heart and support someone who is. Someone brave enough, brilliant enough, and abrasive enough to be considered a true revolutionary. Someone like Melvin Van Peebles. Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand, and this is the big one for this series anyway. You know, I originally thought that today's topic would be a part of last week's show, but no, I need an entire episode to tell the unbelievable story of Sweet Sweetback's badass song. First, I want to give a quick reminder you have enjoyed this series, if you like the work that we're doing, maybe you're a new listener, the biggest thing you can do is hit us with a rating and review. Give us those five stars. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a little review. That stuff goes a really long way to helping us out, and I would really appreciate it. Now, a quick warning. This episode will contain profanity and some many multiple sexual situations, which will not come as a surprise to anyone familiar with Sweetback. But nonetheless, if you are listening with young children, you may want to use discretion. 
So when we last left off, Melvin had just added yet another accomplishment to an already staggering list of accolades by becoming the first African-American to direct a major studio film in Hollywood, California. But he wasn't done there. In early 1970, as Watermelon Man was still being edited, Melvin directed an episode of The Bill Cosby Show, which was Cosby's first TV show. It only ran for two seasons, but still, he directed an episode. He was now a member of the Directors Guild of America and firmly positioned in the Hollywood system that had shunned him 10 years prior. His agent was pressuring him to pitch Columbia on his next project ASAP, saying typical agent things like, well, you know, Mel, all movies are hits before they come out. We got to strike while the iron is hot. Maybe you'll get a bigger budget this time. Hey, maybe even 45 days of shooting. The man he was pitching was Columbia President Stanley Schneider. Now, this guy was neither a visionary nor a stalwart. He was essentially a Nepo baby whose father, Abe Schneider, had worked at the studio since its inception in the early 1920s. Abe was now chairman of Columbia Industries, and he put his son Stanley in charge of the feature film studio. And things weren't exactly going well. His approach was scattershot at best, following the trends set by the other studios. Stanley wanted Melvin to direct a biopic of Malcolm X, but as Melvin writes in his 1971 book, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, he says, quote, I refuse to do any black-oriented project without having the final say-so on it, and naturally the studio wanted final cut. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that this Malcolm X script is the one that was written by James Baldwin. See, Baldwin had been hired by Columbia in 1968 to write a screenplay about the former activist. However, the studio wanted a sanitized version of Malcolm's life, and Baldwin insisted on writing the story as he saw it. The result was, according to studio heads, quote, more like a novel than a script. The story of this project becomes incredibly complicated with various rewrites. It was then sold to Warner Brothers, who then turned it into a documentary. Baldwin released his version as a book in 1972, and eventually it would be resurrected by Spike Lee and turned into the 1992 film Malcolm X starring Denzel Washington. Given that long and ultimately triumphant story, it's amazing to think that in 1970, Columbia hoped that Melvin would direct this film. Well, Melvin says no, so then they try to bargain with him and they hope that maybe he'll serve as a script doctor for Baldwin's project. Instead, to his agent's horror, Melvin demanded $5,000 just to read the script. Conversations abruptly ended, and with no definitive direction, Melvin fell into an existential crisis. He knew in his heart that he hated working inside the studio system. But how could he turn his back on the financial security and the personal prestige? I mean, isn't this what he had wanted? Isn't this what he sacrificed everything for? How could he just walk away? Desperate for some kind of clarity, Melvin drove out into the Mojave Desert, hoping to commune with himself in the bosom of the wilderness. It was a hot spring day. Endless expanses of desert scrub whipped past his car. The sun blazed in a cloudless sky, baking the earth below. Melvin eventually pulled over onto a side road. He parked beneath a long line of electric poles, carrying wires to who knows where. 
He got out and walked to the front of his car. He squatted down, leaned against the front bumper, unzipped his fly, and began to masturbate. He explains, quote, I used to not get along with me because the me I wanted to believe I was was actually battling the me I really was. The really was always won, naturally, but not before a great deal of time and energy had passed under the old bridge and reams of tension and tape and general bullshit had constipated and polluted me around. So I came up with this distilling program. I would decide what I wanted and analyze how to get there with as much dispassion, distance, and intelligence I could muster up. I called this my Upfront Aims program. Normally, when I felt some milestone or other coming on, I would hibernate for a few days or weeks, however long it took, until my spirit was clean enough for my muse's taste. Then my muse would come out and introduce the project or whatever. Then if the idea passed my inspection, more or less a formality, it always passed, I had the veto power, but I was afraid to use it, I would give it my upfront aims program processing. But I was in a time bind, so I was trying this new experimental crash method. I called it semen shock. Anyway, to make a long story short, that's what and why I was behind a dune, crouched down by the car, pounding away at my joint. I'm not exactly sure where he got the idea that jerking off in the desert would give him a direct line to his muse, but after he finished, it seemed to work. Quote, The muse rolled the stone away from the cave. I peered into me and saw I was tired of the man. But there was more. I was going to do my own movie. My me I wanted to believe I was, starts right in on its sabotage, trying to talk me out of it. Who do you think you are? A big film? Yes, a big film. You don't look much like a director to me, let alone a producer, standing there with your fly all open. I zipped up my pants. What about the story? No problem. I got an idea. I lied. What idea? A brother. A brother getting it all together, you dig? And no cop out. What about bread? If it's gonna be such a big film, and what do you know about producing, motherfucker? A producer produces, motherfucker! I was really getting into the thing. Melvin drove back to his apartment in Watts and laid out a large piece of brown wrapping paper on the floor. He started writing. This was his upfront Ames program, and through it, we can truly see his evolving relationship to the Black Power Revolution. Quote, what did I want to accomplish, script-wise? I wanted to take another step in getting the man's foot out of my ass. But to get the man's foot out of my ass means to me, logically, to get the man's foot out of all our black asses. The biggest obstacle to the black revolution in America is our conditioned susceptibility to the white man's program. In short, the fact is that the white man has colonized our minds. We've been violated, confused, and drained by this colonization. From this brutal, calculated genocide, the most effective and vicious racism has grown, and it is with this starting point in mind, and the intention to reverse the process, that I went into cinema in the first fucking place. I came up with the idea, why not make a film about a brother getting the man's foot out of his ass? He wrote a list of given circumstances that he had to deal with, many of which ring just as true today as they did in 1970. Quote, 1. No cop-out. I wanted a victorious film, a film where black folks could walk out standing tall instead of avoiding each other's eyes. 2. Must look as good as anything Chuck ever did. 
One of the problems faced by a black filmmaker, in fact, any American independent filmmaker who wants to produce his own feature, just more so for a brother, is that Hollywood polishes its product with such a great deal of slickness and expensive perfection that it ups the ante. If I made a film in black and white with poor sound, even if it had all the revolutionary and even story elements that anyone could hope it would have, brother would still come out saying, well, shit, we can't do anything, not realizing that the price of freedom is often poverty of means. I was determined that the film was going to look as good as anything one of the major studios could turn out. Three, entertainment-wise, a motherfucker. I had no illusion about the attention level of people brainwashed to triviality. The film simply couldn't be a didactic discourse. If Brer is bored, he's bored. To attract the masses, we have to produce work that not only instructs, but entertains. It must be able to sustain itself as a viable commercial product, or there is no power base. I just need to jump in and say that this point alone is quite revolutionary in its practicality. The vast majority of revolutionary rhetoric, especially at this time, was tied to and ultimately brought down by an attachment to Marxism. The Black Panthers and the Black Arts Movement both saw their market potential hamstrung by idealist notions of communism within a capitalist system. Melvin said, fuck all that. The revolution can, and in fact, must be commercially viable. Okay, back to his list. Four, a living workshop. I wanted 50% of my crew to be third world people. Now, Melvin would later expand this to be any and all outsiders to the system, including African-Americans, Latinx, Asians, women, LGBTQ folks. But this presented a problem because the Hollywood unions were still 99% straight white male. So this meant his crew would be completely unskilled learning on the job. And so, in the script, he would have to take out any element that would require technical sophistication. Melvin would later describe it, quote, There's an old French phrase, don't fart higher than your asshole. Once again, back to his list. Five, bread. Short, short, short. Normal financing channels probably closed. Six, monkey wrenching. I would have to expect a great deal of animosity from the film media. I would have to double check my flanks at all times. As costly as it would be, I felt I would have to leave myself a security margin. Seven, unknowns and variables, the caliber of actors, the caliber of crew. But he also listed an asset on this ledger, quote, I kept asking myself, what could I do that Hollywood major studios couldn't? I could delve into the black community as they would never be able to do because of their cumbersome technology and their lack of empathy. Now, if this doesn't get you excited about film and filmmaking, I don't know what to tell you, man. This is fucking awesome. Listen, if you're not a filmmaker, then you should know that for the vast majority of filmmakers nowadays who are trying to operate outside of the Hollywood system, these are the conversations that they're having with themselves. And yet... Very few actually go out and do it. So let's talk through some of the reasons why. First, it's really fucking hard to make a movie. It requires a level of work and planning and coordination and collaboration and creativity, all with very little chance of success. And if you are one of the lucky few who have completed the miracle and actually have a finished film in your hands... 
how are you going to convince people, strangers, to fork over their hard-earned cash and two hours of their time? Well, this is why a lot of people rely on pre-established genres or known actors. Others hope for the backing of some recognized tastemaker with a large platform, i.e. Sundance, South by Southwest. And yet, even if you do somehow make a film good enough to get into one of these highly selective establishments, which accept less than 1% of all submissions, the chances of actually making money on your investment are still incredibly thin. And that's the reality if you make a great film. But the vast majority of films that are made are not great. One bad performance, one poorly lit scene, one boom operator not on his P's and Q's can ruin your years of writing and planning. As an aspiring filmmaker, you risk the very real possibility that you will spend all your time, money, and labor just to end up with a crappy movie that not even you want to sit through. Now, if you hear all this and you are still thinking, oh, hell yeah, sign me up, then my heart goes out to you because I too suffer from this disease of delusion. But we're actually lucky because we have super powerful 4K cameras literally sitting in our pockets. Now imagine you want to make a movie in 1970. As was explained to Melvin way back in San Francisco, you've got two options, 35mm or 16mm. Both are expensive. And the bulky sound equipment with reel-to-reel -reel tape decks? Forget about it. And since this equipment was so expensive and complicated, the people who operated it charged a premium. And to make sure they got that premium, they organized into unions. Now, the unions are a lot more lenient today than they used to be, but I'll be honest, it's still an incredibly difficult aspect of filmmaking. Obviously, when we're talking about studio films and TV shows that make millions of dollars, all that money should not just be going to the executives at the top. I am very grateful for these SAG residual checks that arrive in my mailbox every month. Please keep sending them. But at the independent level, the costs of union workers, the fees, the minimums, and the bureaucratic paperwork is incredibly prohibitive to innovation, and it's a very steep barrier of entry to up-and-coming filmmakers. But that's nothing compared to the Hollywood unions of the 1970s. Back then, if a union found out that you were shooting a film and not paying them their cut, they'd show up on set, beat you up, and ruin your equipment. If you were lucky enough to get your film shot, you still had to send it to a lab to be developed. Those lab technicians were union members too, and you might get your print back only to discover that an unfortunate lab accident had scratched your master print beyond the point of being saved. Shooting a film behind the union's back was an incredibly risky proposition, but Melvin had a solution. Quote, the answer was so obvious, I didn't see it for a few minutes. The unions don't trouble themselves over smut films, that is, pornographic films, which I suppose they consider beneath their dignity. So Nutsville went to cover my project, and I told everyone I was making a beaver film. Believe it or not, since the end of the silent era, Pornography was the secret bastion keeping the flame of American independent filmmaking alive. 
If you've listened to our Chaplin series, you know that in 1934, Hollywood studios agreed to self-censor their films under the Motion Picture Production Code. This was after the corrupt politician turned president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, Will Hayes, collaborated with a bunch of Catholic priests and a raving anti-Semite named Joe Breen to write a series of moral requirements that all Hollywood films must adhere to. And while this censorship absolutely helped enforce the inaccurate portrayal of minorities and made sure that no copper government official was ever shown in a negative light on screen, its biggest target was sex. From the 30s to the 50s, Hollywood filmmakers had to go to great lengths to hide sexual imagery, and in particular, female bodies. However, Outside of the major theaters, an underground network developed where nude and pornographic films were shown at private parties, brothels, and in the back rooms of illicit sex shops. These stag films were often 10 minutes or less and silent and would feature anything from casual nudity to hardcore sex. By the mid-1950s, nudity gradually became more widespread as certain state censorship boards allowed nudity to be shown as long as it was within the context of a nudist colony. These nudist films, or nudie cuties, could be shown in the new independent and art house and grindhouse cinemas that popped up in major cities after the Paramount Decrees. These films were about 40 to 70 minutes in length and featured loose plots that involved women changing clothes, bathing, or doing all kinds of things that required them to get naked. They were very quickly adapted into various genres, such as Doris Wishman's 1961 sci-fi skin flick, Nude on the Moon, which was actually banned in New York after the state censorship board ruled that, while featuring nudity in a nudist colony was permissible, establishing a nudist colony on the moon was not. Audiences quickly grew bored of the nudist formula, and underground filmmakers started upping the ante, infusing the nudity with danger and violence. These films were called Ruffies, and in addition to the casual nudity, they featured scenes of sexual assault, attempted rape, and sadomasochism, all while avoiding showing penetrative or even softcore sex. Now, you might recoil at that and think, oh, how could anyone possibly want to watch this? But before we get all high and mighty, we should note that these ruffies established the basic formula that would eventually transform into the modern slasher. Young, attractive women, occasionally topless, being hunted by a violent male antagonist. By the early to mid-60s, the motion picture code had fallen apart. The growing number of foreign films and exploitation films that didn't adhere to the code, along with changing social norms, had rendered the code basically useless. The MPPC had changed its name to the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, and in December 1968, under new head Jack Valenti, the code was officially abandoned and replaced with the MPAA film rating system. There was G for general exhibition, M for mature audiences, 
R for restricted for persons under 16 without a parent or guardian, and the dreaded X, meaning persons under 16 would not be admitted. Andy Warhol seized the moment by making Blue Movie, the first erotic film to show explicit sex and receive a wide theatrical release. This ushered in the golden age of porn, a roughly 15-year period during which sexually explicit films received wide theatrical releases along with positive attention from the media, critics, and general public. So, 1970. Porn is newly legal, and there's an entire infrastructure of filmmakers, producers, and technicians making these films. But due to a mixture of tradition and snobbishness, the unions wanted nothing to do with them. So Melvin figured that to work under the cover of porn, he was going to need to, well, add a little porn. So, on that same piece of brown wrapping paper, right next to his Upfront Ames program, Melvin wrote out his story. And <laughs> I'm laughing because if, if you haven't seen this movie before, and honestly, even if you have, it's never not shocking to go over the plot of Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Okay, here it is. It's about a male sex worker raised in a brothel, who performs as a stud in private sex shows under the name Sweetback, which is an old blues term for a man who's good in bed. One day, the cops show up at one of his sex shows and tell his pimp, a man named Beetle, that they need someone to take down to the station just so that they can look like they're doing their jobs. It's no big deal, they just need a willing patsy to spend half a night in jail, and then they'll let him go. Beetle volunteers Sweetback, who goes with the officers without saying a word. En route to the station, the cops get called to a shootout, where they pick up a young black revolutionary named Moo Moo and handcuff him to Sweetback. They drive out to some oil pumps, where the cops are going to beat up Moo Moo. But it's hard to beat him up while he's still handcuffed to Sweetback, so they undo the handcuffs and proceed to viciously beat Moo Moo. As Sweetback watches silently, something inside of him snaps. He wraps the open cuff around his knuckles and uses it to beat the cops to death, saving Moo Moo's life. Sweetback then escapes into the night. The next day, believing that Moo Moo killed the officers, a bunch of cops return to Beetle's brothel and soon pick up Sweetback. But when they see the hanging handcuff from his wrist, they realize it matches the wounds on their fallen officers. So they beat Sweet back up and bring him back to their squad car. However, before they can drive away, two panhandling black teens douse the car with gasoline and light it on fire. In the chaos, Sweetback escapes and the cop car bursts in an explosion of flame. Sweetback goes to one of his girlfriends and asks her to remove his handcuffs. She makes him have sex with her first. Meanwhile, the cops pick up Beetle. He insists that he doesn't know where Sweetback is. The cops torture him and fire a gun next to his ears, shattering both of his eardrums. Sweetback goes to a crooked preacher who runs a sex worker grooming facility as a haven for unwed mothers. But he refuses to help Sweetback because the cops know about his criminal activity and he can't risk being shut down. Next, Sweetback goes to a criminal poker game. But while the card sharks bemoan Sweetback's plight, all they can do is give him a ride to the outskirts of town and put a few dollars in his pocket. 
subconsciously, Sweetback is realizing that all these people, they're just in the man's bag. He runs into Mumu, and together they seek shelter in an abandoned warehouse. However, they soon discover that the warehouse is the hangout of a rough-and-tumble motorcycle gang. The gang's hulking leader reveals herself to be a woman named Big Sadie. She challenges Sweetback to a duel and asks him, What's your weapon gonna be? Knives? Sweetback replies, Fucking. Big Sadie accepts, and the bikers cheer as she undresses, and Sweetback uses his special talents to bring her to climax. Now satisfied, Big Sadie agrees to help Sweetback and Mumu escape. She drops them off at an abandoned pool hall to wait for a special escort, but two cops discover them. A fight breaks out. Mumu is injured, but Sweetback kills the police, shooting one and stabbing the other with a pool cue. Big Sadie's escort arrives, but he only has room on his motorcycle for one. Sweetback, no longer just thinking about himself, insists that Mumu be rescued. Alone once again, Sweetback takes off running. Fearing that the escape of a cop killer could lead to a ghetto uprising, the police commissioner unleashes a full search for Sweetback. A cop chases Sweetback across a footbridge, but Sweetback jumps over the edge and disappears into the desert scrub. The commissioner concludes that Sweetback must be headed for Mexico. A helicopter flies over the desert and catches sight of Sweetback running. Cops are dispatched and catch up to him, but when they get close, they realize it's a white man. Sweetback has used the criminal's money to swap clothes with the white man and get him to run. Exhausted and injured from his jump off the bridge, Sweetback collapses in the desert. He urinates on some soil and uses it to sanitize the wound before summoning the strength to continue running. In the middle of the desert, Sweetback stumbles into a hippie music festival. The cops show up searching for him, so he grabs a black woman and pretends to make love to her in the bushes. When the cops look over, all they see is two black bodies having sex and quickly look the other way. A truck filled with migrant workers gives Sweetback a lift, but he still has a few miles to go, and two officers with dogs are closing in fast. Sweetback runs through the bush as the barking dogs get louder and louder. We see the Rio Grande. On the other side, Mexico. The river rocks are stained with blood. But as we look closer, we see an eye submerged under the water. It's a dog's eye. The dogs have been killed. The camera looks up to the opposite bank and zooms in on the rolling desert hills. A title card appears, which I will not read as it was originally written, but it says, Watch out! A badass, inward, is going to be coming back to collect some dues. For a title, he wanted something that his audience would see and know it was meant for them. He wrote on the brown wrapping paper, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. That's badass spelled with three A's and five S's. He handed the paper to his secretary, and she typed it up into an 18-page shooting script. It was now March 6th, two weeks and three days since he drove to the desert and unzipped his fly. Despite knowing that Columbia would never satisfy his demands for Final Cut and a 50% non-white crew, Melvin had held on to the outside hope that they might be willing to come in as a distributor. 
So, on a trip to New York City to do publicity for Watermelon Man, Melvin passed a copy of his shooting script to Stanley Schneider. A few days later, Schneider invited Melvin to a dinner at his apartment. It was Stanley, his wife, three other white couples, and Melvin. So let me just paint this picture for you for a second. You've got a bunch of wealthy New York liberals and Melvin, who was very fit, very handsome. He wore a sort of uniform of all denim, probably seldom washed. He drank and cursed like a sailor and kept an omnipresent cigar in his mouth, which he occasionally lit, but for the most part, he just kind of chewed on it. This would be a Melvin Van Peebles signature for the rest of his life. I love how Melvin describes this meeting. Quote, My role in our relationship had always been to play sort of the ghetto gamine prodigy who kept to his uncomplicated picturesque ways. Neither of us wanted a direct confrontation, so we had set up this ritual to avoid coming to grips. Anyway, after a long dinner, Melvin and Stanley retire to the den, and he asks, So what do you think of the script? Stanley responds, Well, Mel, very interesting, but we just did it. We would be repeating ourselves. What do you mean you just did it? Well, your film is about black people and the police, and we just did Lord Byron Jones. Quote, I tried to explain to him that Lord Byron Jones, where a black man gets castrated, cut up, beat up, and done in, and stands there with a Bible in his eyes, wasn't the same thing at all as Sweetback. But the conversation got worse when Stanley's wife added, quote, I understand, Melvin. I come from a poor family, too. You know, I've always gotten along especially well with black people. Like my maid and I, we have such a good understanding. Melvin stood up, demanded his coat, and walked out of the apartment. And he was scared. He just stormed out of the president of Columbia's dinner party. Was he being too harsh? Too reactionary? Should he have been willing to negotiate to get what he wanted? Out on the street, he raised his hand for a cab but none of the notoriously racist taxi drivers would stop for him. One cab slowed down long enough for Melvin to approach, then suddenly sped away, leaving Melvin in the middle of the street. He laughed to himself and somehow felt vindicated that he had done the right thing. Next, Melvin sent the script to his agent. The man only read as far as the first sex scene before he refused to represent it. From a logical perspective, you can totally understand where he's coming from. The agent liked Melvin. He was simply trying to save them both from career suicide. Furthermore, he knew that making this hero a black male sex worker was playing into the stereotypical sexualization that had demonized black men in films like Birth of a Nation. Melvin saw things differently. Quote, I'm a big fan of judo, and you can take a stereotype, stand it on its head, and make it work for you, not against you. The agent wasn't buying it, and Melvin wouldn't back down. He tore up his contract and stormed out, saying, quote, You just saved me 10%. Now, Melvin had always been an agitator, someone who used his wit and intelligence to challenge the status quo, but this is the moment when he transitions from provocateur to revolutionary. But I want to stress that this evolution was organic. It was not led by any ideological or intellectual decisions. Instead, it was an intrinsic part of Melvin's personality. He didn't just want to get the man's foot out of his ass. He needed to get the man's foot out of his ass. Scholar Raquel Gates, who I quoted at length in the previous episode, 
puts it best when she says, quote, At times, Melvin claims full knowledge of the revolutionary aspects of films like Sweetback, such as in his 1999 interview in Transition, when he stated that he intended Sweetback as a kind of instructional manual for budding revolutionaries, asserting that his goal was, quote, to make it possible for the disenfranchised to learn the skills they needed in a capitalist society. Of course, these competing narratives and disagreements over Van Peebles' intentions presume that he actually has a defined set of politics guiding his filmmaking, and that these politics are reflected in a consistent manner in his work. In the documentary, How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company and Enjoy It, Van Peebles responds to an inquiry about the politics of his work with the following opaque statement, quote, What are my politics? To win. And I just want to add to this a soundbite from a 2008 interview with the Red Bull Music Academy. When you say your politics is to win, like, who do you win against or what is the fight? Whoever's fucking with me. That's um, pretty simple and pretty straight to the point, yeah. Not very complicated. (laughs) But Melvin didn't just have a responsibility to the revolution and his work. He also had a family. I'm not sure how or when, but by this time, his father, Marion, had moved to a house in Altadena, California. I have tried to find out what happened to his mother, Edwin, and his little sister, who was born after Melvin left for college and he never really had a relationship with, but I haven't been able to trace their whereabouts. Anyway, his dad lives up in Altadena, And his ex-wife, Maria Marks, agreed to let the kids, Mario and Megan, come down to Southern California and spend the summer with their father and grandfather. Mario was now 12 years old and Megan was around 10. And this is the first extended time that they've spent with their dad since they were babies. As Mario would later say, quote, Initially, I didn't like the motherfucker that much. Melvin had pretty much abandoned them to live the life of an international bohemian artist. And if he did feel guilty about this, he certainly wasn't going to say it out loud. With his kids now in tow, Melvin entered into the dark and unsavory world of Hollywood bottom feeders, from craftsmen to conmen and all the crackpots in between. To this day, there is an entire subculture of desperate people all scrapping for money to make their movie dreams come true. If you're a filmmaker, you can picture Melvin's description of them exactly. Quote, There were little pot-gutted rich businessmen who wanted in on the glamour and the starlet pussy. And there were, as usual, the sharp-faced, squinty-eyed parasites and their cousins, the squinty-faced, sharp-eyed parasites, who never have any money but who try to use any occasion to attach themselves to a film. The astonishing thing is how successful many of the squinties are. On any given film, these leeches can be seen hanging off the gunnels. Melvin dragged his kids from house to house, pouring his heart out to money man after money man, and every time, the answer was no. Once he went to a producer's house, and the guy actually seemed pretty interested in the project. He had kids himself, and it seemed to be a little less sleazy than the others. 
He had a climbing rope hanging in his backyard, and his wife joked that it took her husband months of training before he could climb up the rope. Melvin and the kids looked on as the squat little man clambered up the rope, garnering light applause. Once he climbed down, they were just about to start discussing numbers when Megan said, Daddy, can you do it? Melvin tried to ignore her, but the producer said, Go on, give it a try. Melvin might have looked thin, but beneath his ragged denim jacket were military muscles hardened by years without a proper bed. He shimmied up the rope with ease. The embarrassed producer didn't give him any cash, but for the first time, he earned his daughter's respect. After months of rejection, Melvin's filmmaker friends were horrified when he decided to use his own money. Quote, Fuck hedging a bet is the way I feel about it. If you believe in you, bet on you. One of the advantages he had was that he lived so frugally, he had not spent a dime of his $50,000 advance or his $350 a week salary for Watermelon Man. The first thing Melvin had to do was establish a bank account for his new independent production company. Seems easy enough, except that banks were notoriously stingy when it came to working with African Americans. So Melvin shows up looking particularly raggedy. The banker gets all pompous. Um, and what is the name of your corporation, he asks. Yeah, Melvin says. Excuse me, asks the banker. Yeah, Inc. That's the name of the company. It makes it easier to answer the phone. The banker looks at him deadpan. My corporation is doing a film and I'll be sending some money within the next few days to operate with. The banker opened the account but expected to never hear from Melvin again. Quote, I went home, took all the money I had, and wired it to Bermuda, and then had the money wired to the bank in LA. Then I got cleaned up and went back to the bank. It was a whole different ball game after their receiving my $70,000. Besides, I was enunciating like a motherfucker. The cat was bowled over. Couldn't figure out why he had had such a low opinion of me. He was very apologetic, and he stayed apologetic, which was right the fuck where I wanted him to be. Next, Melvin told his plan to Columbia's head of production, a man named Johnny Veach. Veach personally telephoned to Film Lab and got them to agree to develop Melvin's film all at deferred expense. Veach then agreed to supply Melvin with equipment rentals from Columbia, also at deferred cost. Melvin had heard through a friend that there was a black guy in Watts who had taken a filmmaking class and was looking to get into the business. So he drove down to his address and discovered that this man was in fact a massive six foot four, 250 pound gentle giant with a huge afro named Big T. Big T ran a smoked meat barbecue, but agreed to come on the project and served as Melvin's right hand man, security guard and assistant director. Next, he found out there was a black production manager working in the porn industry. His name was Clyde Houston. Melvin sent him the script, and they met a few days later. Clyde said, You don't really have a film. This thing is only about 65 minutes of story. You're wrong, Melvin said, secretly not being sure himself. Charmed by his confidence and possibly just in need of a paycheck, Clyde agreed to join the film, and soon he and Melvin were spending their days together, driving across L.A. and locking down locations. Melvin would spend his afternoons looking for a DP. Quote, I got seasick I watched so many porno movies. And by DP, of course, I mean director of photography. 
Come on, what do you think I meant? Get your head out of the gutter. He continues, quote, Every time I saw a porno that was well shot, it was always by the same guy. His name was Bob Maxwell. Bob Maxwell was a cinematographer who had found steady work shooting low to medium budget pornos with titles like Girl in Gold Boots, The Astro Zombies, The Bang Bang Gang, and my personal favorite, The Ramrodder, which was actually notable because it was filmed on Spawn Ranch while the Manson family were living there, and it featured Manson family members Catherine Scher and Bobby Beausoleil. Anyway, Clyde puts Melvin in touch with Bob Maxwell, and to his surprise, it turns out that Bob runs a family porno production company. He's the cameraman, his wife Nora does the makeup, his daughter was an assistant, and his daughter's boyfriend was the assistant cameraman. They agree to an affordable day rate, and just like that, boom, Melvin is crewed up. Well, almost. Melvin wanted two cameras, so he hired Jose Garcia out of New York City and Tommy Scott, a black crew member in L.A., to serve as his assistant. He rounded out his crew with a small group of inexperienced assistants and workers who Melvin turned into costume designers, gaffers, and prop masters. They were black, white, Hispanic, and Asian. They were straight, gay, queer, and bi. As Melvin later said, quote, I wanted my crew to look like America. Now despite telling act Now despite telling acting agencies that he was shooting a non-union nudie film, he had no trouble finding actors. In 1970, Hollywood was facing a financial crisis and studios were slashing production budgets. Thousands of actors were out of work and willing to go behind the back of the Screen Actors Guild if it meant a paycheck and a little buzz. The only role he couldn't cast was the lead. Quote, The trouble was that the actors who had enough technique were too much in some form of the man's bag, and those who would have been spiritually right didn't have enough technique. The other issue was that despite being in almost every scene of the movie, the character Sweetback only had like six lines. All the actors he met with complained about the lack of dialogue, but Melvin stuck to his guns. He insisted that it was essential that Sweetback was a man of minimal words. But with each successive refusal, Melvin was getting discouraged. Quote, I find some blows harder to take than others. I suppose everybody does. And not finding the lead troubled me immensely. I think what I felt was despair, and since that was one goddamn thing I couldn't afford, I decided to do it myself. On top of writing, directing, and producing, Melvin would now star in his own movie. To maximize his shoot days, Melvin broke the script into what he called globs, sections in the same location, or longer scenes where the characters were all in the same costumes. He scheduled filming so that these globs would all be shot within a single day, starting with the least flexible cornerstone scenes with a lot of extras, and then finishing with the simpler scenes featuring fewer characters. This forethought and planning cut down on the number of costly company moves, freed up time to shoot any new ideas that might occur during filming, and removed the risk that a less-than-professional day player might return to set with a different costume or, even worse, a haircut. 
Now, this type of scheduling for a film is now industry standard. But at the time, it was quite novel compared to the inefficient and costly studio shoots. As a small concession to his original vision, Melvin did agree to shoot some of the street scenes on 16mm film. This would allow his crew to be more mobile and give the shots a documentary feel. Now, it was the final week of pre-production, and Melvin, along with his ragtag crew, were crammed into his Watts apartment, making last-minute preparations without budget or permits. Melvin wrote, quote, It was guerrilla cinema. The idea seemed like it had always existed. You know, nowadays, you can walk into any Barnes & Noble and find an entire shelf of books with titles like how to make a guerrilla feature, and guerrilla filmmaking for dummies. This style of movie making has been championed by filmmakers from Robert Rodriguez to Sean Baker. It has produced huge box office hits like The Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity. You can even go listen to filmmaker and podcaster Noam Kroll interview an endless list of quote-unquote guerrilla filmmakers on his fantastic podcast, Show Don't Tell. But in 1970, no one had ever used the term guerrilla cinema. Maybe you could point to someone like Ed Wood, the quote-unquote worst filmmaker of all time. He definitely had some guerrilla tendencies. Certainly Cassavetes had employed some guerrilla filmmaking tactics. And along with New Yorkers like Andy Warhol, Paul Morrissey, Jonas Mikas, but they were so focused on the experimental art world that their techniques were never really meant to be seen by a mass audience. But this year, 1970, was a bit of a zeitgeist moment. In Baltimore, an unknown NYU dropout named John Waters had just finished his first feature film, Mondo Trasho, with his own 16mm camera. And in Germany, recent graduate Werner Herzog had written, produced, and directed his first feature, Signs of Life. But along with those guys, Melvin was on the absolute cutting edge of a brand new style of filmmaking. And it was all set to begin on May 11th, 1970. Five days before the start date, Melvin gets a call. It was a representative from SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. He said something like this. Well, hey there, Mr. Van Peebles. I'm just reaching out because we have gotten word from a few of the actors working on your upcoming film, uh, Sweet Sweetback's Bad a song and it seems like your team may have forgotten to register the production with our office and we at SAG completely understand that oversights happen in the chaos of production so if you could just rectify this by tomorrow that'd be great we'll have no problems at all and Melvin asks so what's this oversight gonna cost me and the man lists off the daily minimums, and the pension funds, and the special insurance, and a posting bond. All of it together nearly doubled his budget. Melvin thought about it and said, quote, You can take all that shit and shove it back up your ass and slam down the phone. He turns to Clyde and says, We can't use any SAG actors. We have to recast the whole movie. Clyde panics. Okay, okay, I have to call Bob. Well, what are you calling Bob for? Well, we're going to push our start date, aren't we? No! Melvin yells. We're not changing the start date. We're recasting the entire movie right now. Schedule doesn't change. So Melvin starts calling everyone he knows and recasts the entire film with people who have never acted before. 
the only actor who I'm pretty sure was SAG but was willing to work behind the union's back was ex-NFL player John Amos. He plays the motorcyclist who saves Mumu after being shot. At the time, Amos had a recurring part on the Mary Tyler Moore show, but within a few years, he would be known across the country as James Evans Sr. on the show Good Times. Melvin's assistant slash wardrobe stylist, a woman named Priscilla, agreed to perform in the opening sex show. Melvin describes her as, quote, sharp and sunny, energetic and thorough, with an extremely cute turd cutter that she wagged provocatively. Melvin chose this sex show scene for day one of shooting. His reasons were twofold. First, it was a sex scene, and if any union reps were snooping around, it would confirm that this was a porno. And two, it was the hardest scene to film with the most extras. The day before the start date, Priscilla comes to Melvin and says, I can't do the scene. Melvin's like, what? We shoot tomorrow. What happened? Well, as it turns out, she had never really explained what was going to happen to her boyfriend. And when she finally told him, he kind of sort of freaked out. Melvin was furious. Priscilla offered to leave the production, but at this point, she was too integral to the Enterprise to walk away. So Melvin grit his teeth and was able to move an actress from another part into the role. So finally, day one of shooting arrives. Melvin was in his deep thoughts. Quote, a battle cry to myself. Let's do the motherfucker. Existence is the game. Existence is ten-tenths of the game. Maybe possession is nine-tenths, but if you don't exist, you can't possess it, right? If you fathered the image of your concept of the universe, you already got them fighting on your territory, right? Let's make the motherfucker and see what happens. Now, before we continue, a disclaimer. The Behind the Slate podcast and its host Aaron Strand in no way, shape, or form endorse the behavior or the decisions made on the set of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Basically, we can enjoy these stories, we can laugh at them, we can marvel at them, we can view them as a historical account of a devoted artist, while still keeping in mind that this type of absolute batshit filmmaking insanity would be completely unacceptable on a modern film set, okay? Just had to make that very clear. Okay, let's get into it. Melvin was able to secure his first location from a former lady friend's ex-boyfriend's family who owned and lived in an old two-story house in Watts. The Copelands allowed Melvin to use their home as the location for the sex show, and they were fully supportive. Mr. Copeland worked construction and helped rig several pieces of equipment. Mrs. Copeland cooked meals for the entire cast and crew. And the extended Copeland family ended up acting as extras in the film. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this scene. First would be that, yes, in-home sex shows were a thing. Like I said in the Chaplin series, censorship doesn't work. And when pornography was illegal and hard to get people would still pay good money to watch other people have sex. It would just be in person. So Melvin staged a whole bunch of middle-aged extras, mostly black, but some white as well. And for the actual show, Melvin put images on screen that would be progressive even by 2023 standards. The show begins with a bearded black man strutting around the circle of guests with a suit and cane. 
He looks around the crowd, searching for a date, until he finds a beautiful buxom woman with an afro. He invites her to walk with him. She does, flirting and smiling. Beetle, acting as stage manager, turns on some funky, upbeat music, and the man disrobes, only to reveal a bra and a pair of full breasts. It's a woman in male drag. She undresses the woman with the afro and lays her down on the floor. The woman in drag then takes off her pants and reveals a massive black strap-on dildo. The crowd hoots and hollers as she uses the dildo to mount the naked woman with the afro. Cut, 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 Melvin yells. He wants to adjust the lighting. Bob disagrees. You can't mix red and green lights without it looking like Christmas. Melvin says, I'm the fucking director. Do it my way or leave. Bob grumbles as he takes out his gel kit. In the pause, Melvin looks around. The vibe of the room is a bit uneasy. Maybe it's just first day jitters. Maybe it's because there's a hardcore lesbian sex scene happening. But the crew, the cast, and especially the woman with the afro are becoming increasingly tense. Melvin points to one of the extras, an older gentleman in the back of the scene. Hey, Dad, he says. Yes, son, Marion responds. Could you move your chair a little bit to the left? A, a little more. And, and now a little to the right. A little more. A little more. Just there. Perfect. He basically adjusted his father back to his original spot. Thanks, Dad, he says. No problem, son, Marion shouts back. The room took a collective sigh. He could practically see everybody thinking, well, he would let his own father be here. Surely it can't be that bad. The shoot continues. The two women finish having sex, and the one in drag begins to pray. Suddenly, the lights go out, the crowd screams, and a voice announces, I'm the good bag fairy godmother. Yes! The good thing, fairy godmother. A queer master of ceremonies appears in a dress and veil holding a sparkler. She tells the crowd that she's here to, quote, answer the prayers of a good dyke. The crowd cheers as she taps the sparkler against the woman in drag's chest. She takes off the bra to reveal a man's chest. She taps the sparkler against her head. She removes the fake beard and hat to reveal the mustachioed face of... Melvin Van Peebles, a.k.a. Sweetback. Finally, she taps the sparkler against the dildo. He takes it off to reveal his penis. The crowd looks on in amazement as Sweetback gets completely naked and mounts the woman, bringing her to climax. Melvin later writes, quote, I always approach the sex scenes with the most professional of intentions. My partners did too. Besides, I still had the normal directing considerations on my mind. Framing, sound, general flow, etc. On the other hand, I wanted the love scenes to seem real. So the pretending was pretty close to the real thing. The first couple of takes would be, I think the word is simulating, and then you sort of look at each other, and you both know, and then the next take... Kerplunk. Again, this is not acceptable modern set behavior. That night, back on the Columbia lot, Melvin and Bob reviewed the rushes. They were thrilled. To his credit, Bob admitted that Melvin was correct about the red and green lighting, and Melvin loved the angles and the texture that Bob brought to the scene. 
As they celebrated the footage, several large men let themselves into the projection booth. Melvin didn't talk to them, but he knew who they were. They were Union spies, checking to make sure this was just another porno. The next day, production moved to the upper floor of a building on the Santa Monica Pier, which they used as the interior set for Beatles' brothel. After the unexpected visit from the Union spies, Melvin, Big T, and several other crewmen arrived armed with pistols, rifles, and a shotgun. But when Melvin got into his sweetback costume, he couldn't keep his gun on him, so he handed his 38 pistol to his prop master Diane for safekeeping. Day two passed without a hitch. Day three, they were going to shoot the pool hall fight scene, Beatles' bathroom scene, and Beatles' interrogation, during which his eardrums are busted by the cops. In the chaos of production, Melvin forgot all about his gun. When he finally asked Diane for the pistol, to his horror, he learned that she had stored his fully loaded 38 special in a drawer with the other prop guns, all 38 specials. The actor playing Beetle had no idea he had just participated in a game of Russian roulette. And by pure luck, a live weapon was not fired next to his head. Again, this is not acceptable set behavior. By the end of the day, the crew was showing signs of fatigue. Melvin had fired his script supervisor, a position he didn't think was necessary in the first place, and Clyde was crumbling from overwork. To make matters worse, Melvin was already out of cash. He couldn't even afford the next day's film stock, and payroll was just two days away. Now, I can't find any interviews where he goes into details about this, and it's understandable why. But in the commentary on the Criterion disc to Sweetback, Melvin alludes to a situation in which he goes to some local criminals he knew from the neighborhood and asks them for a loan. They basically say... You know what happens if you can't pay this back, right? You're going to be hurt, maybe even killed. Melvin says, I know. And they give him somewhere between twenty dollars and $50,000, allowing the shoot to continue. No sooner had he solved this problem, Melvin gets a phone call. It was his sound guy. Now, the sound guy was actually a union member working behind the union's back. He was so afraid of being caught on a non-union film set that he worked under a false name, and to this day, most of the pictures of the crew show his face blacked out. Anyway, he calls Melvin totally despondent. He says, we've got a problem. Melvin says, what is it? He says, the microphone in the bathroom scene. I, I don't know. It was broken. Melvin says, what do you mean it was broken? He says, I, I don't know. I thought it was working fine, but the recording is messed up. I can't understand anything. God damn it, Melvin says, driving over to his house. He goes there, listens to playback, and this is what he heard. But you know what, man? Like you want to kind of lay out, you know, stretch out a little while, be real cool, kind of lay dead. Don't be let you know what's happening, what's going down. Don't you worry about nothing, or if you need anything, anything at all. Brother, just keep the faith in Beetle. Old Beetle gonna bring you through. Cause this is just a skirmish. <laughs> you know how that game go, baby. But you keep the faith in me, how you my man. You my favorite man. Can you take it, baby? Together, 
you know, maintain. They can't bother you long and be with you. Now you gonna hibernate like that old bear. And don't go nowhere, can you dig it? Yeah, ha, mellow. Go out the back door now, speed on. Don't let nobody know where you at. Let sleeping dogs rest, can you dig it, baby? Ha, ha, yeah. Turns out the sound operator was so unfamiliar with listening to black voices and accents that he just couldn't understand what Beatle was saying and therefore assumed there was something wrong with his mic. Crisis averted. The next several days were spent on a black box soundstage. This is where Melvin staged the scene with the cops beating Moo Moo. Now, in the script, this event takes place beneath an oil pump, but since he couldn't secure a permit and didn't want to risk having himself and his crew arrested for trespassing, he came up with a brilliant solution. After shooting daytime footage of the oil derrick pump and using a process called solarization to make it look like it was shot at night, he now put the actors on the soundstage, shrouded them in darkness, and put a single red light bulb on a stick in the background. He then had a crew member move the stick up and down, imitating the movement of the oil pump, and voila, that's the scene. It was brilliantly done. You would have no idea watching the original footage that it wasn't shot on location. Now, he also used this stage for the infamous motorcycle gang scene. For this scene, he had hired several members of a real biker gang, which he refers to as Hell's Angels, but considering that this was a few months after the Altamont disaster and that at this time there were literally hundreds of different motorcycle gangs in Southern California, I'm not so sure. Regardless, after a few hours on set, these actual bikers decided that they had had enough. They announced to Melvin, we're leaving. Melvin said, you can't go, we're not done shooting. So the biker pulls out a knife. So Melvin turns to Big T, who pulls out a rifle and cocks it. After a tense stare down, the bikers decide to stay. Melvin finishes the shoot, which, remember, involves Melvin once again getting naked and having sex with a giant female biker girl. I don't know about you, but I think I would struggle to stay in the moment if I was naked having sex and being watched by a bunch of bikers that actually wanted to hurt me. Melvin later writes, quote, that wasn't no fucking fun. That was just getting the fucking job done. By the end of the week, Melvin was preparing for the scene with the burning cop car. He had the prop car and all the necessary materials, but waited until the permit office was just about to close to file his paperwork. He got his permit receipt, and then Saturday morning shows up on set to light the cop car on fire. Melvin did not tell the permit office that he was going to blow up the car, and after an hour of shooting and a few explosions, the police and fire department all show up, just like Melvin had planned. He had prepped Bob Maxwell for this. Bob kept filming as the chaos unfolded, and Melvin, staying in character, escaped through the emergency vehicles, and just like that, they shot the scene without having to pay for the cops and fire trucks. After the initial commotion, Melvin shows the cops his permit receipt and says, I don't know why you weren't notified. Maybe the permit guys were too lazy to submit it on a Friday afternoon. I don't know. Again, this is not acceptable on-set behavior. So on to day eight of shooting, 
And this is where things get a little difficult. Melvin had already cast his son, the 12-year-old Mario, to play the young sweetback when he gets taken in by the group of kindly sex workers. However, Melvin had a bit more planned for Sweetback's origin story. Quote, This opening scene hit me spur of the moment. A little boy gets down, and a man gets up. And with that, Melvin decided to shoot one of the most controversial scenes in cinematic history. The scene showed a young Sweetback being seduced slash raped by an older prostitute, and proving himself to be a sexual savant, he causes the woman to cry out in pleasure. Mm. Oh, you got a sweet, mm. you got a sweet, sweet bat. So, having made this spur-of-the-moment decision, he had one of his crew members take his daughter Megan away with the offer of a BLT, and he told Mario what he wanted him to do. Mario was hesitant. In his eyes, his father was a distant and intimidating figure, someone he resented yet also desperately wanted approval from. At first, he refused. He was particularly mad at his dad because a few weeks earlier, in an attempt to retain a positive working relationship, Melvin's former agent had bought Mario a bike. But Melvin, not wanting to accept the gift and trying to teach some lesson about materialism or something, made Mario give it back. So now, Melvin did something really just fucked up. He told Mario that if he did the scene, he would get him the bike for Christmas. Mario asked, Is this going to be an X-rated movie? Melvin said yes. Mario said, Good. I don't want the kids at school to see this. And so, Mario does the sex scene, getting fully naked and laying between an older woman's legs. Now, this was not acceptable set behavior, even by the standards of 1970. Several crew members quit the production on the spot. And Melvin's main girlfriend at the time, Sandra Rush, refused to speak to him for weeks afterwards. To this day, the film cannot be screened publicly in Australia, and the British DVD of the film has the scene removed due to British child pornography laws. A scene like this would almost certainly never happen today, and that is for the best. It has been dissected and criticized and demonized for the last 52 years. Melvin has never backed down from the choice. He believed in his heart that this was the honest truth of the story he was telling. When asked why he cast his own son in the role, Melvin responded that he wouldn't have wanted to ask that of anyone else's child and felt that his kid could handle the job. In a 2004 interview with NPR's Terry Gross, Mario Van Peebles said, quote, You know what? I didn't enjoy it at all. I didn't want to be in that scene. I didn't want to be working with him on the movie. My dad and I didn't always get along. I would never put my kids in a scene like this, but I came to understand him differently as a man. I can't help but think that Melvin's own experience of being initiated into sex at the age of 11 by the employees at his father's tailor shop influenced this choice. Mario continues, quote, He was sort of like that great Santini-esque father, almost that which does not kill you in a Nietzsche-esque way makes you stronger. 
And if I bounce this basketball off your head a little bit, well, you'll be tough and you'll know just how to deal. So he has his whole philosophy and, you know, I'm a filmmaker and I've benefited from him, you know, knocking down the doors he knocked down. For what it's worth, Mario Van Peebles went on to work with his father for four decades and has done more than just about anyone else to preserve his legacy. There's no other way to put it. The scene is incredibly difficult to watch. And that's just how Melvin wanted it. He wanted to slap the audience upside the head, make them squirm in their seats, and pay attention. And in that sense, it's honestly amazing that this scene is just as effective today as it was then. Journalist Michael Barrett writes, quote, When today's audiences are offended by something they see in an old film or book or other creative work, there are broadly two possible reasons for that element's presence. The first is that nobody at the time, or nobody in a position of influence, found it offensive. It was just part of the culture. That's not the case here. The second reason, perhaps harder for some people to understand, is that the element was included deliberately because it is offensive. And the third is what the French decadence proudly called épaté le bourgeois, shock the middle class a desire to be rude and offensive, to tear decency and respectability to shreds, to express contempt for the social standards of the nice and polite. In other words, a revolutionary act. The same year Sweetback came out, one of the biggest box office hits was Robert Mulligan's Summer of 42, scripted by none other than Herman Rauscher, the writer of Watermelon Man, from his teenage experience of losing his virginity to an adult woman. This blockbuster was very romantic, discreet, and white, and it turned out to be acceptable to mainstream theaters. The morning after he shot the scene with Mario, Melvin woke up tired, exhausted, and wondering how he could possibly keep going on what was already one of the wildest film shoots in history. He shuffled to the bathroom and, quote, I tried to pee and almost went through the toilet ceiling. It felt like somebody was running a hot sandpaper poker up my thing. He thought about it for a second and soon realized that for the first time in his life, he had contracted gonorrhea from one of the actresses. He delayed that day's shooting and instead ran to the doctor to receive an injection of penicillin. In the doctor's office, an idea occurred to him. Technically, this was an injury on the job. Why not file a claim for workman's comp with the director's guild? It was at least worth a shot. He did. And to his complete surprise... They approved it. They reimbursed him for the doctor's visit and for the time missed. He used the cash to buy more film. As the second week of filming continued, so did the problems. Unable to afford a stuntman, Melvin did everything himself, including a scene where Sweetback jumps off a 20-foot bridge. Melvin completed the jump seven times. Armed sentries watched for local officials as Melvin and Bob broke through a fence and filmed a scene on the concrete embankments of the Los Angeles River. For the scene in which a crime boss refuses to help Sweetback, Melvin had cast an untrained actor with a stutter, believing his unique speech would bring authenticity and texture to the character. 
the actor arrived on set having paid for extensive vocal coaching. So Melvin changed all his lines, infuriating the actor, but bringing back the desired stutter. The actor would later sue Melvin, falsely claiming that he was the co-writer and owner of one-third of the film. On the 12th day of shooting, Watermelon Man premiered in New York City. Melvin did not attend. He woke up the next morning to read the following review in the New York Times, quote, This dreadfully unfunny joke of a movie falls crashingly flat on its black and white face. Saddest of all, and Watermelon Man is a sad occasion, is the waste of an able new director, Melvin Van Peebles. Watermelon Man demands complete surrender and gives absolutely nothing in return except embarrassment. Melvin threw the paper aside and pressed onward. It was now the 13th day of shooting, and Melvin broke the camera department into two units. He and Bob went into the desert to film intercut scenes of Melvin running, while the second unit, which included Jose, Tommy, Big T, and another hippie crew member, drove a truck into the city to capture B-roll. They filmed street-style interviews with real residents of Watts. This is some of the only footage ever shot of real people living in Watts. But late in the afternoon, when the second unit was supposed to reconvene with Melvin and Bob, they were nowhere to be found. An hour passed, then two, then three. Melvin began to worry. Finally, at 10 o'clock, Jose calls and says, we're in jail. Apparently, the cops had seen the large telephoto lens sitting in a truck with a Hispanic, two blacks, and a hippie. According to the police report, they assumed it was, quote, a bazooka, and pulled them over. Upon realizing their mistake, they did not let them go, and instead conducted an illegal search of the vehicle looking for contraband. All they found was a magazine which contained an article about community organization. Jose had the camera rental paperwork with him. It didn't matter. The cops arrested them all for grand theft, impounding the gear and the truck. They were arrested at 5 p.m. and not allowed to make a phone call until 10. By that point, all judges who could order their immediate release were unreachable. Jose asked Melvin to come down to the station, but Melvin refused. Not only could he not afford bail, but he was worried that he might be arrested too. He thought it was better for the cops to imagine Mr. Melvin Van Peebles, major motion picture director, as a tall, aristocratic white man. But this was risky. Jose had a medical condition for which he needed a daily medicine, and he didn't have his pills with him. Production was halted. Melvin found a lawyer, and finally, two days later, he paid bail for their release. He had to pay for the towing and the impounding of the vehicle and the film equipment. In the end, all charges were dropped, but Tommy Scott, who had to sit in jail for two days, resented Melvin for not doing more, and production was now once again in dire financial straits. Melvin took an additional two days off to try to let everyone cool down and to figure out the situation. Just as things seemed to be coming apart, a little grace came in the form of Mr. Copeland. The patriarch of the Copeland family, who had generously volunteered his home, came to Melvin. He said, I just want to let you know that we are so proud of everything you are trying to do. 
Our entire family has pooled together and we wanted to give you something to help with your film. He handed Melvin $100. Of course, this didn't come close to making up the difference of the lost time and the bail bond fees, but that $100 from Mr. Copeland meant more to Melvin than $100,000 from somebody else. He knew that he couldn't give up. And so, on June 1st, he reassembled a skeleton crew to finish out the final scenes of shooting. Luckily, thanks to his clever scheduling, most of these scenes just involved Melvin alone in the desert. In one infamous scene, he catches a lizard, cuts off its head with a knife, and eats the torso. When asked if the lizard was real or not, Melvin would always play it coy, saying things like, quote, It tasted better than most of the fast food on Sunset Boulevard. And while that's a great zing, I'm gonna call bullshit. I I don't think the lizard is real. The size and the color does not match up with any native lizard species in Southern California. And in one of the shots, the lizard's tail moves far more like rubber than flesh and bone. That's just my opinion. It has not been confirmed. The final shoot day was devoted to the sequence showing Sweetback running through the desert pursued by officers with dogs. This, of course, is a direct allusion to many slave narratives and tapped into the long history of dogs being used as a weapon of oppression from slavery all the way through the civil rights movement. And while it may sound horrifying to modern listeners that Sweetback kills the dogs pursuing him, within the context of the story... It is a shocking and heroic climax, because usually the person being pursued by dogs doesn't escape. Now, for the scene where the dead dogs are revealed, Melvin had arranged for a crew member to pick up two cadaver dogs from the local pound. However, when they got to the middle of the desert, the crew member had somehow either forgotten to pick up the dogs or to bring them... I don't know, but basically, no dead dogs. Melvin told him to call up the local pound to see if they had any cadavers. They didn't. Melvin grabs the phone and offers to make a $100 donation. The pound quickly changed their mind, and within an hour, two cadaver dogs were procured. Whether they were in the freezer the whole time, or something else was done, Melvin didn't know and didn't ask. And after 19 days of shooting, Sweet Sweetback's badass song wrapped production on June 4th, 1970. Melvin went home exhausted. His apartment was empty for the first time since early March when it had been transformed into the offices of Yeah Inc. Trying to relax, he lit a candle and laid down on his bed. He awoke to a warm sensation, a flickering orange light, and the smell of burning hair. Oh my God, my pillow's on fire. He jumps up. Somehow his candle had fallen over and started a fire around his head. He quickly put out the blaze, but was shaken by the experience. Was this a sign? A symbol of his burning creativity? Or an omen of his fiery doom? The following day, the cast and crew gathered together for the rap party. Melvin writes, quote, We have a party and realize how fond we've grown of one another. We begin to see the fucking immensity of what we've just done. 
The next day, at 6 in the morning, Melvin begins post-production in a small editing lab on the Columbia lot with one of the Columbia editing assistants. Now, filmmakers have all different kinds of editing styles. Some, like Martin Scorsese, work closely with one professional editor throughout their career. Editor Thelma Schoonmaker has worked on every Scorsese film since Raging Bull. Others, like Akira Kurosawa, edit as they shoot. His 1961 masterpiece, Yojimbo, famously premiered only four days after shooting wrapped. Some enjoy a collaborative process, inviting friends and colleagues into the editing bay, testing out various sequences, and crowdsourcing people's reactions. But, building upon his upfront aims program, Melvin wrote a new set of principles to guide an unconventional editing process for an unconventional film. Quote, 1. Don't understand the film too quickly. Sure, it was my baby, but I must not be too possessive. Be a good parent to the child. The film had a life of its own now. It was in there somewhere. My job was to find that life and nurture it. This is what editing is all about. 2. I'm lazy and I was tired. So rather than leave it to my own initiative, I set up a work schedule. 6 in the morning to 8 at night Monday through Friday. 8 to 6 on Saturdays. 9 to 4 on Sundays. I also made a promise to myself to be very strict about showing any of the editing to people as I went along. No one ever saw how the scene was going, let alone where it was going. Usually, I didn't even know. For all the attention, media, and money paid to big-name stars and high-profile directors, when it comes right down to it, film is the editor's medium. Good editing can save a messy film shoot. Look no further than Walter Murch's description of the editing process on Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. And bad editing can absolutely ruin a good story or butcher a brilliant actor's performance. A few filmmakers actually hate the editing process, but I think that most really love it. The extended hours in a darkened editing room can become a quasi-spiritual experience. And that's how it was for Melvin. He loved the solitude, the artistic purity, when the floodgates of the mind opened and all possibilities and impossibilities rushed in. He compared it to a witch doctor throwing bones to make a prophecy. Quote, my first week of editing was exhilarating, but there was something else there, something I couldn't reach. Finally, I realized what it was. I was miserable. Melvin was struggling to get into his editing flow for several reasons. First, his assistant didn't like him or the film. This guy was no doubt someone trying to work his way up the studio ladder, and Sweet Sweetback's badass song was a little out there. But second, and most importantly, Melvin's bank account was once again out of money. And the last couple hundred dollars he had were all being sucked away by the hated assistant. In a desperate Hail Mary, Melvin reached out to arguably the most popular African-American entertainer in the world, Bill Cosby. Now, obviously, given that we now know that Bill Cosby is a serial rapist, it's hard to accept him as a heroic figure in this situation. But in this moment, he calls Melvin back. Melvin explains the situation, what he's trying to do, how far he's come, his upfront aims program. 
before he even has a chance to invite Cosby to the editing suite and show him the footage, Cosby says, how much do you need? Melvin says, about 50000 Okay, 50000 it is. Melvin offered Cosby an ownership stake in the film. Cosby refused and sent the money without seeing a single frame. As this happens, another turn of good luck. His assistant quits. Melvin puts on a big show of being disappointed, so the assistant says, well, don't worry, I found the ideal replacement. And he introduces a young hippie named Jerry, who had never actually handled 35mm film before. But, preferring enthusiasm over expertise every time, Melvin took Jerry under his wing, and soon the unlikely duo were banging out hour after hour, day after day, assembling Sweet Sweetback. Quote, I was happy. Sure, there were creative anxieties and editing problems and money hassles and everybody laughing behind my back and the doomsayers doing their number. Shit, Jesus Christ was nothing but a carpenter in his own hometown, right? I hadn't been able to deal with films so purely since I had to sell my car to make my first short movie. I dig purity. No one to please or to try to understand but my muse. I was happy. In his artistic purity, Melvin was able to experiment to the fullest. For low-light scenes, such as when Sweetback is being transported in the police car, he double-printed the film. One print was in color, the other was in high-contrast black and white. He then stacked these prints one on top of the other. This created enough luminance to keep the shot from appearing underexposed, and it also created a beautiful glowing halo that added texture and presence to the image. He used solarization and negative color to create psychedelic visuals. He used jump cuts, distorted sounds, direct addresses to camera, overlays, double exposures, crossfades. To help him visualize all this, Melvin did something brilliant. Now, the standard editing tool was called a moviola. It was a device whose roots go all the way back to the 1920s. It looked kind of like one of those old-fashioned Singer sewing machines, a raised desk with a standing arm in the back, which would hold the film reel. This fed into a console with various controls, and then out of the console, toward the seated editor, extended a viewing screen, which was about four inches by six inches. Now, in order to see the multiple images he wanted to overlay, Melvin took three moviolas and lined them up next to each other, each playing a different section of the film. He would then stand at the back of the room so he could see all the screens at once. This multi-screen array would later become standard on Steenbeck editing consoles and in modern editing software such as DaVinci Resolve or Adobe Premiere, these multi-screen arrays are industry standard. One of the things I love about all this is that you can trace the seeds of this experimentation all the way back to 1957 when Melvin was struggling to make his very first short. If you remember, filmmaker Alan Willis gave Melvin a book so he could learn about editing. That book was Sergei Eisenstein's Film Form. Now, Eisenstein and his mentor, Lev Kuleshov, revolutionized the way we edit and watch film. Before them, 
Film editing had been used primarily as a scene change or a curtain drop in a theater. It just moved the story on to the next beat. Eisenstein changed all that. He theorized that the true power of film lay in its ability to link vastly different images through the cut, and that these collisions of different shots could be used to manipulate the emotions of an audience and create powerful film metaphors. He expanded this juxtaposition into a collage of film images called a montage. In film form, he created an entire intellectual framework for different categories of montage, which I won't get into here. The point is that Melvin's early exposure to Eisenstein's film theory clearly had a profound impact on his work. He took Eisenstein's principles and used them in his shorts, in the story of a three-day pass, in Watermelon Man, and now, with complete artistic freedom, Melvin was getting his Eisenstein on. In a 2021 article titled, Good Thing Melvin Van Peebles Ignored All That Dumbass Safe Advice, author Michael Barrett writes, quote, Van Peebles applies a dazzling cornucopia of avant-garde techniques to a supposed grindhouse story. From the start, we have continuous disjunctive edits of image and sound, more mirror shots, split-screen effects, freeze frames, shifts of time and place, colored solarizations, odd abstract angles, superimpositions, fragmented musical comments, mixes of documentary and fantasy, occluded compositions, symbolic cutting, the whole Eisenstein. It was a magical synergy of content and form. These aggressive, transversive, and in-your-face choices furthered the emotional feeling of emancipation both of the character and the filmmaker. Melvin recalls, quote, each time I came to a new section, I would gather all the material and run it until I almost knew it by heart. Then I wouldn't simply boil it down by numbers. I would sit down in the cracked old saggy sack that used to be a stuffed chair with a towel over my face. It looked like I was goofing off, but I would be trying to open my floodgates and break the code. Each glob, each scene had an essence, and I was trying to discover the code. One scene in particular occurred just after Sweetback escapes from the cops and runs into the desert, tired, beaten, and injured. The footage worked on its own. It simply showed Sweetback rolling around in the dirt, wincing in agony, treating his wound, and then eventually summoning the strength to push on. However, Melvin's muse chimed up and asked, Who's he arguing with out there in the desert anyway? He's rapping with angels. Melvin later wrote, quote, I was flabbergasted, and like everybody else, when faced with the unexpected, I was frightened. I suppose, to be honest, I was hostile too. My little package was all neat, not a loose end in sight, and here was shit being thrown in the game. I didn't want to listen, but I knew I was going to. He decided that in this moment, Sweetback was actually arguing with a group of bourgeois black angels who were trying to convince him to give up and turn himself in. And since Melvin was in a state of complete artistic freedom, he decided that, of course, they were going to argue through song. So he goes and gets his little numbered keyboard and he starts fiddling around. One, one, four, two. No, 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 that's not right. One, one, four. 
four and a half, three. No, 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 that's not it. Finally, the muse came to him with a tune. He loved you, mama. He loved you, papa. But he won't wait me. Your brother and your sister, too. How come it took me so long to see? He created a psychedelic audioscape taking place completely in Sweetback's head. Now at first, the angels were encouraging Sweetback to give up. He ain't gonna let you stand tall, Sweetback! The man knows everything, Sweetback! The man knows everything! But as Melvin says, quote, ass-licking ain't Sweetback's style no more. He wants to be free, not pseudo-free, or on third or so free, like the man used to allow him to be when they used him as an exploitive tool. If you can't beat him, join him, the Colored Angels counsel, but Sweetback goes on. They begin to plead for him to turn back, as colored people do, because each step he goes past the line is an indictment of their rationality, i.e. their cop-out. Sweetback keeps on keeping on. Who says you can't beat him in the first place? Slowly, something vital begins to return to the soul of the colored angels. Pride, hope, and courage. Their blackness. Sweetback has turned them around. Run, Sweetback! Now, I'll admit, when I first watched this sequence, I had no idea what the fuck was going on. But now I see that there's this choice, a deep, touching expression of Melvin's personal, emotional, and artistic freedom. Sweetback arguing with the angels is actually Melvin arguing with every person who told him to go back to the Air Force, go back to the post office, go back to America, go back to the magazine, go back to Columbia Studios. And it's because of this personal testimony that the film speaks to a universal experience. And in a way, it captures the very essence of the shift from civil rights to black power. Melvin was riding high, but the stress of work, the long hours, and the constant staring at three tiny moviola screens was beginning to take its toll. Quote, working this way could be super dangerous. It was like playing double or nothing, but in an extremely fluid situation. One day, Melvin woke up to discover that he couldn't see out of his left eye. The strain of staring at the moviola screens had left him partially blind. He had to wear an eye patch for the rest of the editing process. Slowly but surely, the assembled sections began to accumulate. He put them all together, and they added up to 13 reels, roughly 2 hours and 10 minutes. He broke out laughing, thinking back to how Clyde Houston had told him that he only had 65 minutes worth of a story. He raced to the projection room and watched what he had made. Quote, I squinted my eye to be critical. I doubled, nay tripled my efforts, but I loved it anyway. Everything worked. 
what he saw on screen was an unbridled explosion of honesty, as shocking as it was beautiful. To prepare his audience for this experience, which was unlike anything they had ever seen before, he added in a title card to the opening credits. It was an old French incantation, once used by medieval poets who didn't want to piss off the king. It read, quote, Sire, these lines are not an homage to brutality that the artist has invented, but a hymn to reality. But Melvin wasn't done yet. He still needed sound. And this was going to be a tremendous amount of work since much of Sweetback was shot silently. Melvin sought the help of two effects specialists that worked with him on Watermelon Man. They took full advantage of Columbia's sound effects library and Foley stage, creating footsteps, screams, even the exploding cop car. But the most important sound that was missing was, of course, the soundtrack. Melvin knew he wanted to write and record the music, but all his musician buddies were back in New York, and he didn't know anyone out in L.A. He could try to get a bargain with the studio orchestra, but would they really be able to handle his wild music and self-taught writing style? Really, what he wanted was a group that was cool and modern, who were comfortable playing together, but not too stuck in their ways to try something new. Melvin's former secretary, Priscilla, came to help. Her boyfriend knew a fantastic group that had just moved to L.A. and they were looking for work. Melvin was skeptical. Isn't this the same guy that made you drop out of the scene before the first day of shooting? Yeah, no thanks. She says, no, 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 trust me, he really wants to help. So Priscilla's boyfriend took Melvin to a single-room Hollywood apartment where 12 ragged musicians were all living together. I can smell it now. They had just moved from Chicago and were struggling to get their little band off the ground. Melvin asked, so what's your band's name? Singer and percussionist Maurice White explained, well, you see, I'm a Sagittarius, which is a fire sign, but my full chart reveals the seasonal quality of earth and air. So, you know, Melvin says, yeah, 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 but whatever. What, but what's your band's name? Maurice says, earth, wind, and fire. They were completely unknown, having only played a few gigs together, but Melvin brought them to the studio, and soon they were all jamming together as the freshly cut sections of Sweetback played on a screen. Within a few weeks, they recorded an entire album of music that combined Melvin's rapping with funk, soul, blues, and gospel. Finally, Melvin moved on to the last stage of post-production, where you take all the sound effects and music, mix them together, and send them along with a final print to the lab so they can generate a composite print with both the sound and image on the film strip. Quote, Fatigue was beginning to get to me. I was barely making it, and Jerry was already half dead. Each morning he stumbled in later and later. Worst of all... The unions had finally caught wind of what Melvin had done. They went directly to Columbia and basically said, Hey, your new black director has broken all the laws of Hollywood, and now he's using your facilities to make his non-union film. Melvin was screwed. 
the unions and theater chains had a deal, and he needed a final union seal of approval for Sweetback to be shown in major theater chains across the country. But once again, Lady Luck came to the rescue. Despite its initial poor reviews, Watermelon Man had proven to be a surprise box office hit. As the weeks and months rolled on, it continued to turn a profit in inner-city theaters that had been operating at a loss for years. Hollywood didn't understand it, but all of a sudden, Melvin was getting smiles in the hallways of Columbia. Leaning into his new cachet, he went to the execs and asked if they would let him use their dubbing stage. Well, Mel, you know, the unions are a little upset with you right now. I know, I know, but I promise to use only union dubbing technicians. Well, that sounds smart, Mel. Good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only thing is, I'm going to need it on credit. You think we could arrange that? Well, uh, sure thing, Mel. We know you're good for it. And so, Melvin got his dubbing stage and smoothed things over with the union technicians. But just before dubbing was set to begin, Jerry came in and announced that he had had enough. He was quitting the film. Melvin reacted strongly. Quote, I hit him in the mouth and grabbed his hair and threw him down. Every time he tried to explain, I hit his head on the floor. Listen, motherfucker, don't be coming in here telling me what you're gonna do. You're gonna leave this goddamn film when I let you. But whack. I bounced his head off the floor. If you try to cross me again, I'll pull your asshole out through your eye socket. Please let me up. I let him up, but some people learn very slowly. As soon as he got to his feet, he tried to start discussing again, and so I whopped him upside the head a couple more times. Look, motherfucker, we made a deal, and you're the only one who knows these elements besides me, and if I don't have this film ready soon and pick up some bread, I'm going to lose my head. Jerry changed his mind although I don't know if Melvin ever apologized. They worked in the dubbing studio for four days, making sure everything was perfect. They had something completely new, a mind-bending adventure movie rooted in a uniquely black perspective. As a final touch, Melvin changed the opening credits. Instead of himself receiving top billing, the first title card read, starring the black community. And with that, Melvin Van Peebles walked out carrying a finished print of Sweet Sweetback's badass song. I imagine this moment a bit like a hiker who has just scaled up this incredible mountainside filled with sharp rocks and treacherous cliffs. He's survived falls and cuts and wild animals, and now, gasping for breath, dying of thirst, he finally pulls himself over that final rock and collapses with exhaustion. Slowly, he opens his eyes and his face sinks. He looks upward and realizes that he's only reached a plateau and that the real mountain towers before him, shrouded in ice and wreathed in dark clouds. Melvin had made his movie, but how was he going to get it distributed? 
he starts working the phone. He's calling anybody, everybody. He spoke to several major studios and distributors. Some even made offers. But they all required Melvin to hand over a significant ownership percentage of the movie. And this happens to this day. Filmmakers are constantly getting squeezed out of their own art because distributing and marketing a film requires so much time, money, and effort. And from a certain perspective, Melvin was already in an extremely rare and advantageous position. He owned 100% of his finished film. And as he fully admits, quote, this wasn't out of some great business sense. It was because no one wanted to come in with me. He could have easily started selling off chunks of ownership and still been left with more than most filmmakers. But in case you haven't learned by now, Melvin isn't like most filmmakers. Quote, The film was finished, but I wasn't. I was determined to keep that possession, being nine-tenths uptight. Having a percentage in a movie is supposed to be very complicated. There are so many ways to cut the cake. It isn't complicated worth a motherfuck if you don't cut the cake. I had offers from majors, but they wanted to give me their prestige of their taking a chance with me. Fuck that. I wanted bread and I wanted control. Melvin started demanding $1 million for the rights to the film. He was laughed out of every building he went to. Even A&M Records wouldn't touch Sweetback. They refused to release the soundtrack album, and Melvin was forced to take the master recordings to the much smaller Stax Records. All of this was done without Earth, Wind, and Fire, who were at this point pissed off because a $500 check Melvin wrote them bounced. Finally, in early 1971, Melvin met with a man named Jerry Gross, who ran a New York-based studio called Cinemation Industries. They were not in a strong negotiating position. They were an exploitation studio which had distributed several Swedish porn films and had made the 1967 film Teenage Mother, which was one of the first films to talk about teen pregnancy, sexual hygiene, and show graphic actualization of birth. Fun fact, this film was the acting debut of legendary comedian Fred Willard. But worst of all, Cinemation Industries was in bankruptcy and in threat of going completely under. Melvin liked the cut of their jib. He said of Gross and his partner, quote, They had balls and brains. Enough brains, in fact, to know they didn't know black folks, and that's pretty smart for white men. He ended up leasing the film to them for help with the distribution costs and negotiated a sizable portion of stock in cinematic industries. Now, as we've discussed, in order for an American film to be shown in theaters, it had to be submitted to the MPAA and subjected to their new rating system. This was not as draconian as the old Hayes Code censorship office. However, it cost money and was a major impediment to any independent producer. As Melvin started contacting theaters to see if anyone would actually play his movie, he began receiving letters from the MPAA requesting that he submit the film for a rating. He refused. To Melvin, the rating system was bullshit. Foreign films were not required to get a rating, and was not his film essentially a foreign film made by foreigners within the United States of America? Despite this idealistic reasoning, 
any American-made movie not submitted to the MPAA would receive an automatic X rating. And for an independent film without a marketing budget, this was synonymous with box office suicide. MPAA president Jack Valenti sent Melvin a personal letter calmly stating that the ratings program was entirely voluntary and he did not have to accept the rating or advertise it. Van Peebles refused to go quietly. He threatened to sue the MPAA unless the film officially was given a separate or non-rating specifically for black audiences. But as difficult as the MPAA was, the situation with the theater chains was even worse. There were no black-owned theaters in the entire country. And in white-owned theaters, it was standard practice to show black-themed films as double features. Even the prestige titles starring Sidney Poitier were often slapped together with some old classic as a way for theater owners to hedge their bets that, quote, the black audience wouldn't turn up. Melvin refused this. He doubled, tripled, quadrupled down. His movie was going to be shown as a standalone feature or it wouldn't be shown at all. The months ticked by and no theater would agree to show the X-rated black story with a curse word in the title and an opening sex scene with a 12-year-old boy as a standalone feature. So weird, right? Melvin recalled, quote, The theaters were afraid that people would rise up in fury and in anger. I said, you think a guy that has to wait four times as long for a bus to go to a job where he gets less money is going to come to this movie and suddenly realize he's a second-class citizen? Desperate, Melvin traveled to Michigan, where he met with a pair of twin Jewish brothers called the Goldberg Twins, who owned an old struggling theater in downtown Detroit called the Grand Circus. The house of this theater was huge, with over 3,300 seats. It hadn't reached capacity in years, and the Goldbergs had long since closed off the upper mezzanine. Melvin gave his usual spiel, you know, this is a groundbreaking film, the first film ever made just for a black audience. The Goldbergs weren't really buying it. So trying to do something, anything to swing them over to his side, Melvin reverted back to his 10-year-old hustler self with that wagon full of old clothes. He said, I tell you what, if this movie doesn't make you more money than you made last week, I will buy each of you a custom suit. The Goldbergs looked at each other and chuckled. They liked him. Each of us a new suit? That's right. But if it does make more money than the previous week, you have to buy me a suit. Deal? They agreed. But they still had some questions. How are you going to advertise it? Oh, don't worry about that. I'll figure that out. But what about this X rating? Oh, don't worry. I'll handle it. Nine days before Sweetback was set to premiere, Melvin Van Peebles held a press conference and read aloud a letter written to Jack Valenti and the Motion Picture Association of America. Quote, As a black artist and independent producer of motion pictures, I refuse to submit this film made from a black perspective for blacks to the motion picture code and administration for rating that would be applicable to the black community. 
Neither will I self-apply an X rating to my movie if such a rating is to be applicable to black audiences as called for by the Motion Picture Code and Administration rules. I charge that your film rating body has no right to tell the black community what it may or may not see. Should the rest of the community submit to your censorship, that is its business. But white standards shall no longer be imposed on the black community. Melvin filed a lawsuit against Melvin filed a lawsuit against the MPAA for unfair and discriminatory business practices and actually got the ACLU to take up his case. Quote, All my life I had seen X-rated movies. If X-rated means damaging to young minds, there was Tarzan, King Kong, Manton Moreland, Step and Fetch It, and I can't find anything more damaging to the psyche of a young African-American or minority in those things. You don't call those X? I think you've lost your credibility to judge. Suddenly, newspapers began to write about this crazy new movie, Sweet Sweet Back, They couldn't write the word badass due to local obscenity laws. Melvin went on the radio and talked about the case, describing his film as, quote, rated X by an all-white jury. This was a direct allusion to the Black Panther Party's 10-point program, which states as part of point nine, quote, We have been and we are being tried by all white juries that have no understanding of the average reasoning man of the black community. Melvin had done everything he could, but would it work? On the night of March 31st, 1971, Sweet Sweetback's badass song opened at the Grand Circus Theater. Melvin paced in the lobby, waiting to greet the very first audience to ever see the film. Two people showed up, an older woman and her daughter. Melvin couldn't even bring himself to say hello. He slinked into the massive auditorium, his heart sinking with defeat. The movie started, and the older woman and her daughter watched as a 12-year-old Mario was undressed by an aging prostitute. Quote, I'll never forget, after 20 minutes, they walked out and asked for their money back. Melvin was crushed. The next night was even worse. No one came. The Goldbergs didn't even bother to play the movie and sent their projectionist home early. He had failed. Everything he had done, everything he had risked, it was all for nothing. The third night, Melvin didn't even bother to go to the theater. He couldn't take it. He had to think about his future. What was he going to do? How was he going to pay back the loans? He had burned all his bridges. Where was he even going to go? His phone rang. It was the Goldbergs. Get down to the theater. Something's happening. Fearing the worst, Melvin ran down to the Grand Circus, and when he got there, he couldn't believe what he saw. Several hundred young black audience members filled the seats. They wore leather jackets and black berets and African dashikis and natural hair. Some had traveled over 60 miles just to see the movie. As the film started and the opening scene rolled, it was met with a raucous chorus of shouts that continued throughout the duration of the film. The audience 
became a part of the movie-going experience. They cheered for Sweetback and cursed his enemies. Tears of joy filled Melvin's eyes. By the next night, the Goldbergs were forced to open the old mezzanine. They ran out of popcorn, and within five days, the film had shattered an all-time house record, making $45,534. Before he even had time to think, Melvin flew down to Atlanta, where the film was scheduled to play at the Coronet Theater, which I mentioned at the end of the previous episode. Despite local papers censoring advertisements for the film, word had already spread, and by opening night, lines of black audience members formed around the block. It smashed house records once again. Melvin recalls sitting in the back of the theater next to a little old lady dressed in her Sunday best. She was enraptured as she watched the film, but as Sweetback ran through the desert, pursued by dogs, he heard her whispering under her breath. The old woman was praying, Oh Lord, please let him die. Let him die, Lord. Oh, let him die. She had been so conditioned to watching African-American men die in her life and on the screen that she just wanted it to be over and for Sweetback to die with dignity on his own terms. As the final title card declared that Sweetback had made it and was coming back to collect some dues, the entire theater exploded into raucous applause. As one audience member who saw it during its initial run said, quote, it became a renegade independent film that you simply had to see, in part because of the impression that there were people who didn't want you to see it. Actor and director Bill Duke recalled in the documentary The Birth of a Black Hero. I remember the first time I saw Sweetback, um, <clears throat> I think it was with a couple of friends of mine. And we were both acting students at the time and... Uh, we just looked at it like, this is a black man that did this? This is really, I mean, he directed, wrote it, edited it, starred in it, did the music. A black man did this? Melvin says, quote, I wanted to give people something to see that they were winning. And Melvin certainly was winning. After a series of record-setting theater runs, he regrouped. In the pause, he released the soundtrack to build up buzz for a nationwide premiere. And before, music, even in Hollywood, was not used as a selling tool. Music came after the film. They bring the film out, even if, they, even if Hollywood bought, bought a Broadway musical, they would, they would bring it out as a film and then maybe they'd bring out the album. Since I had no money, I had this this idea. I said, oh shit. Hmm? Since it would cost you a lot of money for a 15 minute, 15 second commercial. But the, the song would run three minutes or so. So what I did, and you get paid besides. So I wrote the song and gave the song the title of the film, so every time they played the song, they were plugging my movie. Duh! Hmm? Hmm? Nobody ever thought of it. Huh? And that's, that's what I did. 
The soundtrack to Sweetback became a hit and would eventually peak at number 13 on the Billboard Top R&B charts. Earth, Wind & Fire would go on to become one of the defining groups of the decade. Melvin also quickly wrote and published the book, which I have quoted throughout this episode. It was the first guidebook to low-budget independent filmmaking ever written. Melvin simply said, quote, I wrote the book because I didn't know if I was going to get out alive, and I wanted my children to know why I had done what I'd done. He printed t-shirts that read, Rated X by an all-white jury. By this point, Melvin was having fun with it. No newspaper would publish the word badass, so Melvin started taking bets. Quote, The day the New York Times ran the full name of the film, I must have collected about $1,700. In June 1971, Huey P. Newton, who had been released from prison only 10 months earlier, dedicated an entire edition of the Black Panther newspaper, which by this point was the most widely read black newspaper in the United States, to Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Newton himself wrote a brilliant analysis of the film's revolutionary power titled, He Won't Bleed Me. In it, Newton declares Sweetback as, quote, the first truly revolutionary black film made. And in the final paragraph declares, quote, when Bobby and I started the Black Panther Party, we wanted to build the black community, the love, the sacredness, and the unity we need so desperately. This is still our goal, and we try to help the community survive by administering our many survival programs. Sweet Sweetback helps to put forth the ideas of what we must do to build that community. We need to see it often and learn from it. It was made mandatory viewing by all Black Panthers. Sweetback reopened in over 160 theaters across the country. Melvin said, quote, I probably made $8 million before three white people had even seen the fucking movie. Money was pouring in, but Melvin stayed on the offensive. When a Boston theater chain cut nine minutes from the film, Melvin sued them for a million dollars and won. When an independent distributor tried to withhold $30,000 in rental fees, Melvin showed up at his 57th Street Manhattan office and held him out of his high-story office window until he agreed to pay the money back. By the end of the year, Sweetback had made over $15 million at the box office. To put that into context, that's $111 million in 2023 money. It was the highest grossing independent film of all time. Melvin owned 100% of the film, the record, the book, and the t-shirts. And by September of 1971, cinematic industry stock had more than doubled. Melvin was a multi-multi-millionaire. His success was resented on all sides. Conservatives declared him a criminal menace. White liberals denounced him as a violent radical, racist against white people, an accusation that has no bearing on the actual film. The movie is actually completely fair and saves some of its harshest criticism for the black characters that refuse to help Sweetback in his escape. In the documentary How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company and Enjoy It, filmmaker St. Clair Bourne says, quote, Melvin's role as provocateur had succeeded. 
Everybody had something to say about it. Everybody had something to disagree about it, but nobody could deny its power. Susan Stark of the Detroit Free Press called the film, quote, an incoherent, hateful, and hate-filled one-man opus. You knew how controversial it was going to be in terms of the, the sexual images, in terms of the violence, in terms of uh, the way you were criticized about how women were portrayed. I mean, there was a long list, I'm sure, that sure. you could make up before you shot the first, you know, shot of all of the people you were going to piss off, excuse me, you know. Duh. But you didn't, that didn't concern you. Oh, that was a good box office. But some of the harshest criticism came from the African-American community. In a 1971 episode of Black Journal titled, Is Sweetback Really Sweet?, three differing opinions were given about the film. The first was Peter Bailey, associate editor of Ebony Magazine. Van Peebles himself, Van Peebles um, himself said at the beginning of the movie, this is starring the black community. Well, then, uh, so I, I, I feel as though, uh, and I feel as though if you're going to go around and say that a movie is starring the black community, then the community has a right to, you know, to comment about this and tell you, you know, that you're not going to use us. You know, like, you're going to make your own thing, that's fine, but do it that way, but don't try to bring us all, don't drag us all into it. And uh, you can't have, you know, you got to have it one way or the other. You know, this is my movie, fine, I make it the way I want, then okay, then it's starring me and my friends, but don't say it's starring the black community. Next, Francis Ward of the Kumba Workshop, a theatrical organization based in Chicago. But we feel that the only purpose for Sweetback is, as I think as I indicated earlier, to titillate, to amuse, and to, 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 to stimulate in a rather perverse and vulgar way. To stimulate, you know, those carnal senses, you know, particular to skin flicks, particular to stag films, particular to girly magazines. In short, we think Van Peebles is a hustler. Um, all his women are degraded whores. Uh, whose only role is to satiate his desire for ego gratification and for sexual satisfaction. The Kumba Workshop doesn't think that Van Peebles is a serious artist. Not at all. We think he is an exploitive artist. We think that he made a skin flick just for that purpose, to hustle black people. The film was defended by Clayton Riley, a critic with the New York Times. I think it's the best black film I've ever seen. I think it's the best black film ever produced in the United States. Well, I, because I think he's a filmmaker. And I don't think filmmakers ever say anything directly because films would probably run 10 or 15 minutes then. You know, they'd all be short subjects. The fact is that he has chosen to explore, in, ter in, in the process of making this statement, he has chosen to explore uh, a segment of black life in this country. And I say, you know, to filmmakers who have said to me that they, they, they hate the film, I say that your responsibility is to make a film that shows another part of the black experience. This is just, Sweetback is one part of an experience that we incidentally know is true. Melvin also shared his defense. I'd be very surprised if uh, um, everybody agreed on anything. However, I think it's a very racist point of view for a person to say, well, um, I'm black and I don't agree with the film, therefore the film is in disagreement with black people. I think um, um, we're then falling into the same bag of the man, that is, uh, all black people think alike. Um, I think all black people do think alike by their oppression, the only one way that they do want the oppressor eliminated. It seems 
that our people have not had the courage for all their loud uh, talking toward this film to attack the white man. And if they can get themselves together um, to attack me, it's a very uncomfortable position at, uh, in the short range. But if um, this is what it takes uh, to get the niggas' minds working out of sight. And I disagree uh, a thousand percent on their attack, and I uh, question, um, you know, their motives. Melvin had every reason to be optimistic. He was the ultimate winner, and he wasn't done. He had big plans, big ideas. A thousand movies existed in his brain, and he was ready to make them all. What happened? I mean, why didn't you go on to make other films that had even greater success? Oh, well, that, that, that is, a, of course, a, a political and an economic question. Mario Van Peebles later reflected, quote, My dad said to me, son, it's very important that the big boys win when you win. If they don't win when you win, they have no interest in you winning. In fact, they have an interest in you not winning, and they'll resent your winning. Melvin the revolutionary, had challenged the status quo. He proved to the world that the hegemonic structures of Hollywood could be broken. But in the process, he burned his studio, his agent, the unions, and his friends. And Hollywood never forgot. His legacy was soon lumped in with an era of low-budget, black-themed studio films that would come to be known as black exploitation. The same year as Sweetback, the Gordon Parks film Shaft was released by MGM. Melvin would later claim that Sweetback's success convinced executives to change Shaft from a white character to a black one. And while the initial draft of Shaft does have John Shaft as a white cop, this claim is almost definitely not true. Shaft was well into production with Richard Roundtree in the starring role before Sweetback's debut. Sweetback's success, however, certainly did affect MGM's marketing strategy. They followed Melvin's model to a T, releasing Shaft as a single bill feature in inner city theaters with an accompanying soundtrack promoting the film. The formula worked and Shaft became a huge hit. Over the next five years, Hollywood produced over 70 of these films. I recently saw a film called Shaft. The point is that Shaft is about someone who does not exist, who has never existed. There is no John Shaft. There is no black private eye who's running around, you know, saving people from, uh, from the mafia, or, uh, is diving through windows with Molotov cars. That doesn't happen. So what we are asked to, to do is accept an un, something that is unreal as, as an extension or as a register of what our culture is actually all about, as opposed to accepting one portion of that culture. And Melvin Van Peebles does not suggest that this is the entire story of black people. He is suggesting that this is one aspect of it. Melvin was quick to push back on the notion that Sweetback started black exploitation. Quote, Blaxploitation wasn't quite as liberal as they made it out to be, because all those heroes had white bosses. 
Shaft had a white boss, Cleopatra Jones, etc. Shaft, being a detective, worked for the system, and Superfly dealt drugs to his own people in service of the system. These were sweetback copies drained of revolutionary meaning. The truth is that despite its recent reappraisal in the eyes of critics, black exploitation was used to diminish the artistic qualities of Sweet Sweetback's badass song. A more accurate association would be to put Sweetback among the work of new Hollywood directors, such as Coppola, De Palma, Scorsese, and Altman. Melvin was the revolutionary that these men were marketed as, and yet, in the book Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, one of the definitive texts about the new Hollywood generation, author Peter Biskind doesn't even mention Melvin Van Peebles or Sweetback. This dismissal was not unique. Van Peebles would not be offered a directing job for the rest of his life. He had sacrificed his career for what he believed in. Part of him hoped that his actions would inspire a generation of revolutionary black directors who would be willing to, like him, work outside the Hollywood system and create films on their own. But with studios willing to pay small salaries for black exploitation films, this movement didn't materialize. At least, not at first. And so, alone, Melvin Van Peebles, the richest and most successful independent filmmaker of his era, started looking elsewhere, and he set his sights on Broadway. The, and the message in the final analysis... You bled my mama, you bled my papa, you won't bleed me. And cut. On the next and final episode of our series, Melvin operates in a world of suspicion, constraint, and misunderstanding as he spreads his brand of black power from the Great White Way to the New York Stock Exchange. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. If you have any questions or comments, you can always reach out to me at BehindTheSlatePod at gmail.com. That's BehindTheSlatePod at gmail.com. Please hit me up. I would love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram at BehindTheSlatePod, on TikTok at BehindTheSlatePod, on Twitter at BehindTheSlatePod underscore. And until next time, that's a wrap. Yeah.